Amen. Thanks, Terry. <clears throat> uh, good morning. I didn't introduce myself earlier. My name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Redeemer. We're in week two of a series uh, that, as Drew said last week, is going to take us through the uh, school year uh, in First and Second Samuel. <clears throat> and uh, this morning, we've got a lot of the Bible to read. Uh, Terry offered to cut this for me uh, just up here at the front while he was looking at it. He said, oh, I, can, I can take some verses out of that and shorten it up for you. I said, no, thank you. Um, they're, uh, they're all here for a reason, but uh, it, is, it is quite long, so let's, let's jump right in. Uh, it's in your worship folder. It'll be on the screen behind me. If you're watching from home, it'll be on your TV screen. Um, or you can use the Pew Bible or the Bible you brought from home. But as we like to say, uh, get your eyes on the passage, uh, various passages, that is, from these three chapters. So hear God's word from 1 Samuel 4, parts of 5 and 6. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in a line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, Why does this great shouting, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought. And Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward, he being the messenger uh, from the battle. Uh, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. And about the time of her death, the women attending her, that is, the wife of Phinehas, his, uh, Eli's, this would be Eli's grandson, uh, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon, and they set it up beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon, put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. 
the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, and they said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us that we shall send it to its place. Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there have never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its side, the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done this great harm to us. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were weeping, their, reaping, not weeping. They'll be weeping in a second. They were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw the ark. They rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord this holy God, and to whom shall he go up away from us? This is God's word. Say with me, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Now the outline for you is on the following page uh, in your worship folder. Uh, We're starting kind of with the ark, and we will come back to the ark in a few months. Um, But as we continue in this series, for many Christians... Or if you're new to the Bible, the Old Testament is less familiar than the New Testament. But let me encourage you, all of you, read 1 Samuel. Read it every week before Sunday. Read a little bit during the week. But the more you read it, the more familiar the story will become. And I would even argue or try to convince you, you'll fall in love with the story. It'll become as good as one of those Daniel Steele novels or whatever it is that people read of that sort these, these days. Jamie's reading a couple books right now. They're not Daniel Steele. Uh, some Hunger Games meets Lord of the Rings, and she can't put it down. It's just so addicting. She loves it so much. I hope that this story becomes kind of like that, that intriguing, that captivating to you because this is part of a much bigger story, a much bigger drama. But this is fun to read uh, and fascinating to do so, as I uh, hope you just heard some, uh, some bits and pieces of that, even from this morning. So the three things uh, today for us to kind of learn from this passage, all about the ark. First, the ark's presence. Why is it so significant? And I'm going to give some background. It's even a little bit of history, uh, because I don't presume that we all know what the ark was or why it's so important. Um, other than Indiana Jones was trying to save it from the Nazis, right? For most of us, that's probably what we think of when we think of the ark, right? But what do we learn about God's heart from it? Man, it's so amazing. Then what happens in light of its absence? Its absence, it captures part of a bigger problem that Israel is facing. And then lastly, how do you answer the question? The question that the ark brings all of us is who is able to stand? Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, okay? Those three things. First, it's presence. If you're new to Christianity, 
But especially if you're newer to the Bible or you don't have much familiarity with the Old Testament, you might have heard of the ark, but you're not sure what it was and why it was important. Well, if you look closely at this picture on the background screen behind me, that's the ark. That's the actual ark. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know where Joe got that. Probably from Google. Google has thousands of images uh, of the ark. But they're all pretty accurate because we have a very detailed description from the scriptures. Um, It was a wooden box overlaid with gold, roughly about three by four feet, and inside of it were copies of the Ten Commandments that Moses received on Mount Sinai, a sample of manna, and Aaron's staff. It was carried with poles. You'll see the poles there or the holes that the poles went through, and you'll see on the top there the cherubim, those angelic beings with their wings covering, their faces are down. You can Hopefully you can see some of that. It's a pretty big picture. The top piece, or the lid, was called, does anybody know? The mercy seat, the footstool of God, the only place on earth where a part of God would rest. That's why the cherubim are there, because they're covering their eyes with their wings, and they cover the feet of Yahweh. The Shekinah, or Shekinah in Hebrew, it means dwelling or settling, And the glory cloud of God, his presence would rest on the ark. And Moses would speak with the Lord and his face would be so bright, he'd have to shield his face from the rest of the people. He'd have to put a veil on after he had spent time in the tent of meeting or the tabernacle speaking with God. Even then, not just anyone could enter the most holy place where the ark was. And all this, all the regulations, all the descriptions of this, these are a lot of times the chapters you skip. Let me get to something interesting to read. Let me encourage you, don't do that. Because in the descriptions are beauty that God wants us to take in because they are a reflection of him. God put a great many rules and regulations into place for Israel to follow to the T. In fact, he said to them, do this exactly as I tell you. Parents, you ever say that to your children? How aggravated do you get when it's something pretty important and you say, no, you have to do this exactly as I'm explaining it to you, and they don't. And then, you know, the fish dies, or the dishwasher breaks, or something like that. Exactly as I tell you. Very important. And God says, I want to draw near to you, but on my terms. When we draw near on our terms, it never goes well. Because he is, if you go back to the reading of the law, as Isaiah got this vision, the whole earth is full of his glory. And day and night, as we read in Revelation, they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who was and is and is to come. He is not to be taken lightly. Only the Levites, the priestly clan of Israel, could move and handle the ark They had to cover it with leather-like pieces of goatskin when they moved camp. They couldn't look at it. They had to cover it up before they put the poles in to move it. And even then, only a subset of Levites called the Kohathites, you can read about them in Numbers, could manage the tabernacle and its furniture. So God said, only a very select few people who I'm going to train in a very specific way can handle this stuff. There was a screen that separated the room that the ark was in from the rest of the tent. No one else was permitted to look at the holy things without being put to death. And as you'll see, a lot of the safeguards I'm describing, they weren't followed much. 
when it comes to the time of Samuel. We didn't get to read about that, but I'd encourage you to go back and read chapter 2 uh, of 1 Samuel, and you'll see uh, how corrupt Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were because Eli didn't train them. The Ark of the Covenant was the place of presence. While the Lord was present among his people in the Exodus, he, the word I want you to remember here is he localized his presence. He localized it in the tabernacle for the benefit of his people. The tabernacle was constructed so that the Lord would be among his people. He says in Exodus 25, verse 8, And let them make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell in their midst. Do you hear that? This is the God of the universe saying, I want to be among you. I want to be near you. I want to be with you. But in an even more specific way, the ark served as the place of the presence of God. Later in Exodus chapter 25, God says, there I will meet with you. On the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you. It's amazing. Not only that, but the ark as a sign of God's presence and power among his people, was to lead out when Israel went to battle. So, again, a little bit of Old Testament history here. You can go back and read about this in the book of Joshua. The priests carried it across the Jordan River, and the nation crossed the river into the Promised Land. As soon as the priests went ahead, as soon as they dipped their feet in the water with the ark, what happened? The water splits. The people walk across the river on dry land. As soon as the priests came out of the river... There goes the water back to where it was. They carried in front of the people as they marched around Jericho. And you remember what happened? <clears throat> as they fought the battle of Jericho, fought the battle of Jericho, fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. The ark was in the front. In the ancient world, and we read about this a minute ago, the Philistines, the Philistines testified to this. The ark developed a reputation. God fought for Israel, and the other nations took notice. But listen, if you're new to the Bible, I want to hopefully debunk something you might have heard, and this continues. It was a, something the ancient church dealt with, and we still deal with it today. Many people don't like the God of the Old Testament. They say he's mean, he's brutal, he's angry. Haven't you read the Old Testament? They prefer the God of the New Testament. I'm much more, I'm more of a Jesus-type person. Peace, love, meekness. We'll take that, thank you very much. But I want to show you the heart of God is the same. The heart of God in Genesis, the heart of God in Revelation, it's the same heart. Here's a mind-blowing idea about this God, the God of the Bible, the God that we worship. The eternal God who is not constrained by the existence of time, he's eternal. The infinite God who's not bound by the constraints of space, infinite, whatever that means. The transcendent God who dwells above and beyond all time and space, the immense God who fills all time and space condescends to the weakness of his people and becomes manifest, becomes present, becomes local for them. He's not bound by time, but he binds himself to this time-bound experience of his people. He's not bound by space, but he says, it's at this box that I'm present. He's above all creation constraints, but he bound himself to his people. He is everywhere, but he was there. And listen, God is so often in the Bible seeking to overcome the distance we create in order to draw near. We like the distance. He likes the nearness. 
in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, he walks and talks with the man and woman in the cool of the day. They sin. They don't trust him. He comes looking for them. At the beginning of the Exodus story, the Bible says that God hears the groans of his people. He sees them. He comes down to deliver them. And he then delivers them from the Egyptians. He leads them into the desert. He provides for them at every turn. All the while, they're whining and moaning about how much they miss Egypt. Then they come to Sinai. And the tabernacle, you find out, was God's idea. The ark was God's idea. Because he wants to be near. Even laying out the terms, even telling the people how they are to approach him was a gracious act. Here's something to wrestle with as you think about the holiness of God and the ark and all the rules and the glory of God. There's a point at which Moses asks God, please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. Moses wanted to experience something of the weight of God, his heaviness, because that's what the word means in Hebrew. It's this idea of the weight or the heaviness of something. That's the root word in in Hebrew that comes to translate to glory. And I want you to uh, listen. Sorry, I meant to have it up here. Uh, This is Exodus chapter 34, uh, verse verse, uh, 5. The Lord descended in the cloud, that's the glory cloud, and stood with him, with Moses there, as a... Sorry, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. If you could imagine experiencing the glory cloud, if you could imagine experiencing the presence of God in the ark or at the ark, what would that experience feel like? What would it be like? Please forget that closing scene where they all melt to death at the end of Raiders, okay? It's really cool, especially when the Nazis melt, because you're like, yeah, all right. Indiana's going to get it and take it back to the museum or whatever happens to it. God passes by Moses. What's the essence? Dane Ortland says, our deepest instincts expect him to be thundering, gavel-swinging, judgment-relishing. We expect the bent of God's heart to be retribution for their sin. And then Exodus 34 taps you on the shoulder and stops you in your tracks and says, no, the bent of God's heart is mercy. His glory is his goodness. His glory is his lowliness, his desire to be among his people. Go back and look at the assurance of pardon. You flip back over a couple pages in your worship folder, Isaiah 57. It says he is high and lifted up. He inhabits eternity. I don't know what that means because you're inhabiting this room right now, but you can only be in one place at one time, even with an iPhone. He comes near because he wants to be near, hence the grace of the ark. Now, what happens because it gets captured? Eventually, the ark comes to rest in Shiloh under the care of Eli and his sons, but the Israelites have a big problem. They go out to battle. This is chapter 4. This is where we began, and they're routed by the Philistines. Now, naturally, they ask, why? What's going on? Well, some of the elders remember the ark. They say, Go back and uh, look, at, look at the beginning of, of chapter 4 here. And they come back, uh, they've been defeated, and they say, why has the Lord defeated us? 
let's bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Notice that they say, let's go get the Ark so that it will save us. The, the, uh, the elders remember that it's there and it was supposed to be carried to be the sign of God's presence and power. So they go to Shiloh, they get the Ark from Eli and his two sons. They go to battle again, this time with the Ark. What happens? Verse, uh, verse uh, 5, or excuse me, uh, lost my place there. Go down to uh, verse 10. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled. Every man to his home and 30,000 soldiers were killed. Why? How is it that the ark goes out with the army and they are roundly defeated and in the very next chapter, the ark without a single Israelite soldier decimates Dagon? Because God will not be domesticated. God will not be taken lightly. See, Israel had come to worship the sign of God's presence rather than the God whose presence came with the sign. And they were treating the ark like a rabbit's foot. You guys know what those are? Uh, teenagers, you may not, it may not be a thing anymore. I don't know, but you know, people used to carry them around when I was in high school. It's my rabbit's foot. Really, what's that for? That's my good luck charm. Okay. <clears throat> well, that much the movie got right. That is probably the only thing that the movie got right. Because when the Nazis found out that the ark was somewhere and they were digging for it and they wanted to find it, and I forget who it was, one of the characters says, the army that carries the ark of God in front of it is invincible. And it, it was true. Except... It wasn't the ark's presence you had to have confidence in. It was God's presence in the ark that you had to have confidence in. And the people, uh, well, they had a much deeper spiritual problem. See, because the clergy are corrupt and spiritually immature, they lead the people toward the same mindset. We didn't read from chapter 2, but what you learn in chapter 2 is Eli had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and they were terrible in fact, the Bible says in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2 that they didn't even know the Lord. What? The priests that are in charge of the temple didn't even know the Lord? And they used to, because they were so corrupt, the people would come in to offer sacrifices and they would take a big fork and they would say, I'll take the fat parts and if there's anything left over, well, that'll be fine for the offering, but I'm going to take the fat parts. Well, what did the law say? The law said the fat was for God. Why? Because that's the best part. And yet these people, these two guys, would steal the fat. And then they would sleep with the women who served at the doors of the temple. And Eli gets word of this and he says, my sons, what is wrong with you? Well, dad, you, you never taught us how to do anything differently. They wanted to live however they wanted and then use the ark when they needed it. And we often relate to God the same way, right? I'll pray when I need to. I'll access God's things like the Bible or church or pastors when I need to. But generally speaking, I'll live how I deem most fulfilling. It's hard to admit, but using God when we need him is easy to do. Underneath it is a wanting to keep control of him, to keep things light, just make him a cosmic butler who will meet your needs and ensure life isn't too difficult. 
But beware. Beware that mindset. What happens? Well, the wife of Phineas, she has the right reaction to the ark's capture. If you look at chapter 4, verse 19, she says what? She names this child Ichabod, saying the glory has departed from Israel. The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. And the writer of Samuel wants us to see the significance of the ark's capture and Israel's using of God in such a way that the deaths of Hophni and Phinehas and Eli and the family are really the backdrop to the main event. The main event, the main problem is Israel's relationship to the Lord. See, the ark was captured because the glory had already departed. God will not be taken lightly. Now, I keep saying, or I've said that word a couple times, and I mentioned in Hebrew, the word for glory means significance or honor or reverence. The root word is weighty. God's glory is, in a sense, his weightiness. And what I want you to see is, throughout these chapters, there's a play on words. This is why you need to, man, this is why you need to read this every week. Because these writers were so good. I mean, so good. All kinds of neat things going on. There's this play on words, this contrast between heaviness and lightness. Or between things that are heavy that aren't supposed to be and things that are taken lightly that aren't supposed to be. The heaviness of Eli. Stealing God's glory in the temple sacrifices. Did you see where he fell over? Because he was old and heavy. And in Hebrew, it says he grew fat on fat. Eli and his sons had grown heavy on these portions which belonged to God alone. I mentioned this already, but it bears repeating. His sons are sleeping with the women who are serving at the entrance to the tent where the ark was kept. They grew lazy and light toward the heaviness, toward the weightiness of God. His glory, his significance was something they were taking, uh, taking lightly. That's the contrast. But God says, I, I will not be robbed. Those who steal from me will be held accountable. Yahweh will not be taken lightly. And so you have Eli's family experiencing their demise. God had previously said it would happen. And what ends up happening is the ark gets captured, and the Philistines captured, and they store it in the temple of Dagon. Now, Dagon is a corn god, okay? He's a corn god. The pagans made gods out of anything, and so can you and I. So don't think, what a silly idea. They made a god out of corn, corn god? I don't do that. No, you've got other gods, right? We can make idols out of anything, and we see the silliness of idolatry. Pagan deities were highly dependent on the service of their worshipers. Dagon is so inept that he has to be propped back up did you get that? The writer of Samuel is trying to make you laugh. Dagon is so inept that he has to get helped back up to his prominent place in the temple. Again, there's this idea of weight. Dagon didn't have any substance. The statue is light enough for the people to manipulate it. But the writer says that God's hand, we didn't read this part, but if you read all of chapter 5, you'll see that what happens is the Philistines take the ark and they move it to all of their big cities because 
God's hand is heavy on this city. And then they move it to this city and God's hand is heavy on this city. And then they move it to the last city and the people are so scared that there's a riot at the city gates. They said, don't bring that thing in here. We don't want any part of that. So the Philistines were picking up the heaviness of God. We're appreciating the glory of God in a way that Israel had not. That's part of the point the writer is trying to make. God is not propped up, though. He's not manipulated. He does just fine against Dagon with no soldiers around him. All rival gods will fail. They will literally bow before the God of the universe, Yahweh. Unlike Dagon, the Lord doesn't need anyone. He doesn't have to be carried. There's this image of like Dagon is this Humpty Dumpty and they don't have any glue to put him back together. I mean, it's so funny, but it should sober you. It should sober us because idols continually need to be propped up. An example of how this works in our heart is, as I said, we can make a God out of literally anything. So I want to ask you, we're thinking, where are the God rivals in your life? If money matters to you more than God, if money has more glory, more weight to it than God, then when you lose it, when you don't have enough, when it's threatened, you'll prop it up. You'll work harder. You'll cheat because the glory of money is consuming you. And the irony is money in and of itself doesn't have any power. It doesn't have any glory. We assign power to it. And then we serve it as if it did have this power or glory, or you take the approval of other people. If people-pleasing is more important to you than God, if people-pleasing has more glory or more weight or more significance to it, then when it's under threat, you'll prop it up. If you find someone who's disappointed in you, you'll lie, tell them what they want to hear, do anything to ensure that they're not going to think less of you or won't be disappointed in you. And if you find that disappointing people devastates you, maybe people-pleasing does have too much weight. Maybe it has too much glory. And that's how you know that it's probably a rival to God because you're trying to prop it up and protect it at all costs. We are led to believe uh, at the beginning of the story that the threat is the Philistines, but it turns out the real threat to Israel is God himself. And the end of the passage helps explain that. And that's where I want to end with the question, the question that the ark presents to us. If you go to uh, 1 Samuel 6, so uh, on, that, on that next page there, uh, the ark was in the country of the Philistines seven months, and they say, we have got to get this out of here. What are we going to do? So they come up with a plan. They prepare a new cart. Now, these are pagans who didn't have the law, so they didn't have any idea how things were supposed to be done. You didn't build a cart to transport the ark. It has poles that you're supposed to carry it with. And... Then they yoke the cows to it, and they do this convoluted thing, and they put these uh, figures of gold. Uh, they made, like, cast gold things out of the tumors that everybody got on their body because God's hand was heavy against them. And they're like, maybe this will be an offering to the God of Israel. We'll see how it goes. But as the ark comes into Israel, the people of Beth Shemesh are reaping their wheat harvest, and they rejoice when they see the ark. And they split the wood of the cart, and they offer the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord, none of which was what they were supposed to do. The weight of God's presence in the ark was too much for the people, and so 
some of these guys, as they were splitting the wood of the cart up, and obviously the ark's just sitting there, they're looking at it. And so verse 19, God struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. His hand is heavy on them. And they ask the right question, but they don't make the right application. Do you see the last verse? Then the men said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? Get him out of here. They're responding just like the Philistines. Eli isn't standing anymore. Neither are Hophni and Phinehas. Dagon falls to pieces before the glory of God. So who can stand? When the weight of God's glory presses down on you, who can stand? In answering the question, the whole story is asking us, we've, we'll, we'll be led to the right application. But to understand, we've got to review. There's something absolutely astounding that happens in these verses that we read, in these three chapters. And this was kind of an aha moment for me this week. In Deuteronomy, you learn that the ultimate punishment for unfaithfulness to the covenant was exile. Like the man and the woman in the garden, all the way back in Genesis 3, the punishment for disobedience was being banished from paradise. And in the same way, God said the ultimate curse for the people was to be exiled from the promised land, which was where God's presence was in a special, localized way. But what's interesting in this story is who or what experiences exile? Who gets kicked out of the land? The ark. God is exiled in the capture of the Philistines. The glory has departed, remember? The people say the glory has departed. The people are the ones who deserve the judgment of exile, but God is exiled instead. The people take lightly the glory of God, but instead of the people bearing the judgment, God himself does. And this is where, as the Jesus Storybook Bible says, every story whispers his name. You can start to hear Jesus whisper, whispered in this story because God would take his glory so seriously that ultimately in Jesus, he would take the weight of glory on himself. In the cross, Jesus Christ becomes our representative and substitute. The weight of God's glory crushed him it pressed down on him and crushed the life completely out of him. He took the judgment of exile on himself so that you and I could be welcomed home. And in Romans chapter 5, the apostle Paul says, because of the peace Jesus has won for us, we can now boast in hope of the glory of God. And what that means is, if your faith is in Christ, the glory of God ceases to be a fear and becomes a hope. We boast in it. We glory in glory. So the question, who's able to stand? Anyone who's standing in Jesus. Anyone who's hidden in Jesus. Because hidden in him, I can stand before the Lord of hosts who is enthroned between the cherubim. John said, out of the fullness of Jesus, we have received grace upon grace upon grace. So go back to that last verse uh, printed for you there, 1 Samuel 6, verse 20. The right application is not wanting God to go away from us, the, the right application is, well, now hidden in Jesus to experience the love of God for you in Jesus is a change in perspective. Now you say, I want to be near you. I want to enjoy you. I want to commune with you. I want to worship you. I wouldn't say, to whom shall he go up away from me? I, I, I want to say, where can I go to get near him? 
Because we were made to live by every word that comes from his mouth, we were made to walk and talk with him in the cool of the day. The God of the Old Testament and the New Testament are one and the same, desiring to dwell in our midst. Grace, grace, marvelous grace, the old hymn says. The Christian gospel is that we do nothing, we gain everything, and all we need, or as a result of having all we need, we'll do anything, whatever he asks of us, exactly as I show you according to the pattern. And his pattern is exactly the way that life works best. Here's the lesson as I finish. God doesn't need us. He can handle his own glory. He's jealous for his glory and his honor among all people. He is not to be taken lightly, but at the same time, God wants you. He desires to share his presence with you. And I was reminded this week of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. No, not the Lord of the Rings this week, um, but uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, Many of you, if you've read the stories, you remember this passage, but it's near the beginning of the story. And uh, the kids are talking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And Lucy says, is he a man? Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie. Make no mistake. Vicky should read this. It sounds way better in an English accent. Just realized that. Sorry, Vicky. Um, that you will, dearie. And make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, how we worship you. Our great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we worship you. And as we said earlier, uh, we confess how ho-hum we often are in approaching you. But we thank you that while oftentimes we take you and your glory lightly, your things, your matters lightly, you never do. And in fact, you take your glory so seriously that you would offer up your one and only son that he might be crushed under the weight of the demands of the law in order to save us, your wayward children who had done nothing exactly or even close to exactly according to the pattern that you showed us. And so renew us, we pray. May the ark Point us upward to your great glory cloud, your great throne room in heaven. And may we, after staring at that in lost in wonder, love, and praise, be turned to our gaze, turn our gaze to Jesus, who is the very proof that even though you don't need us, you desperately want us. And so you would come after us all the way, all the way to the cross. May we marvel at that and may, as we'll just sing, would you tune our hearts to sing of that grace, transform our hearts to be molded and live according to that grace. And would we live out of it so that the world might see and you might receive glory in Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. Uh, we begin with a welcome and an invitation when we call us to worship, and then we, we, uh, we end with this promise, this sure word that you would grab hold of and take with you. Isn't God good, the way that he has this service organized for us? Uh, it's so amazing. So uh, I pray that the Old Testament would increasingly become amazing to you. It would be, I mean, isn't it, isn't it awesome? I mean, it's a little weird in foreign places. I get that. But give it time, and it will grow on you, I promise. Uh, commit to it. Do us that favor as we go through this series together. Receive this benediction. Grab hold of it. May it land in the depths of your soul and carry you through this week. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.